We have been working our way through Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And so we're going to just pick up where we left off last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, verses, uh, I'm going to read the whole section again, verses 17 to 34, and then we're going to uh, pick it up in verse 27. So let me read this section again. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, says this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's just stop and pray again. Lord, what we need this morning, I pray that you would give us, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, help us to understand what you are saying in your word, that we might eat and drink and so proclaim the Lord's death until he returns and that we would do so in a worthy manner. Father, help us to understand in order to be conformed to the image of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I wonder... Um, I wonder how much you prepare, uh, how much preparation you do before the Lord's Day comes. Every week has a Sunday. Every Sunday we gather together to praise our risen Savior. Yet sometimes Sunday seems to take us by surprise. Worship is the pinnacle event in the life of a Christian. Or at least it should be. Yet, too often, worship doesn't feel like the peak of our weekly existence, does it? There are many reasons for this, but one of them, I think, is because so often we fail to prepare for worship. The ancient Israelites were expected to be prepared for worship. 
This is one of the reasons why, for example, the Jewish Sabbath began at sundown the day before, to give hearts and minds time to rest. As Christians, we should be no less prepared. God does not want us to enter into His presence with distracted minds, weary bodies, cold hearts. He wants us to enter into His house focused and focused and rested, ready to join with one voice in praise. And so we should also be prepared to come to the Lord's table in a worthy manner. One of the criticisms of uh, weekly communion that we sometimes hear, and usually it's from other pastors actually, is that celebrating communion less frequently, say once a month, is better for the church, they will say, because it gives church members an opportunity to examine themselves and repent of any sin. Of course, I would counter that by pointing out that the Lord's Day gives us, each Lord's Day, gives us an opportunity to repent of our sins and come into His courts with thanksgiving and praise. In fact, it allows us to do this on His timetable and not just when we feel like we need to. So there are many things that we can do to prepare for the Lord's Day. We could go to bed earlier on Saturdays. We could pray and read our Bibles throughout the week. We could get out the kids' church clothes the night before. I know, easy for you to say. We could make sure there's gas in the car. I'm going to have to start doing that in a couple of months. (laughs) We could read the pastor's weekly update emails and meditate on the sermon text for the week could even pray for him. We could pray for other church members. We could pray for the elders and, and the deacons and their families, for the musicians and the song leaders. We could pray for the Sunday school teachers and the nursery workers. We, we could confess our sin and pray for the Lord to refresh our soul as we worship and fellowship with his saints. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago Um, as we began this look at the Lord's Supper in this passage, that if I were titling this entire passage, verses 17 through the end of the chapter, I'd probably call it something like conduct at the supper, because that's exactly what Paul the Apostle is addressing for the Corinthian church here, as he's had to do for so many other issues before in this letter. Paul is correcting their attitudes and their actions as they come to the table. And as we broke this into three sections, we've seen first in verses 17 to 22, the divisions in the church were revealed, as well as the frequency with which not just the Corinthians, but all of the early church observed communion. And then last week in verses 23 to 26, we looked at the tradition received. That which Paul received from the Lord, he passed on to them. And this was an an ordinance of the Lord. We are commanded regularly to come to the Lord's table to proclaim his death. And we're to do this until he returns. And now this week we're going to be looking at this final section of this chapter, verses 27 to 34, which really are the abuses of the Corinthian church corrected. So abuses corrected. And on one hand, 
The abuses that Paul is correcting are very specific to the sin of the Corinthian church, particularly the elitists of the church who were overindulging in the elements of the supper while those who were poor went without. But there's also application here for the rest of the church who were evidently tolerating this sin. But there's also application for us here as well some of which is a correction of what I would call bad exegesis, which has the effect of binding consciences. In other words, there are those who use this passage to tell Christians that they must not come to the Lord's table with any unconfessed sin whatsoever. To do so would make you guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Hear me very carefully here. We sin and don't even realize it. We, if you don't think that's true, repent of your pride. <laughs> so we need to correct some bad exegesis, and I'm going to go through this here in a little bit. Some bad interpretation of the Scripture. But we also need to understand what the passage is saying. So that when we come to to the table, it, it will not be for judgment or discipline, but for grace and proclamation and communion. So listen again. I want to read just today's passage again, verses 27 to 34. Paul writes, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So every week in worship, um, after we have been called to worship, typically Pastor Ben reads a a brief section of Scripture that calls us to to worship him. After we've sung a couple of hymns of praise and and worship with, uh, with our tithes and offerings, after we have heard a portion of God's Word read, we confess our sins, both corporate and individual, and we also hear an assurance of pardon. Confession of sin and assurance of pardon. Why do we do this? I've always done, um, since I've been here, I've always done some kind of pastoral prayer as part of the service. It's a habit I picked up from my pastor um, growing up. We can see the command in Scripture Not only are the apostles' letters filled with prayers or mention of how much Paul prays for them, but Paul commands corporate prayer in his letter to Timothy, his first letter to Timothy. But we should also consider what the apostle John writes in 1 John 1, verses 7 to 9. He says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 
if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then just a little bit later, in in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, he writes this. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world, both Jews and Gentiles, John is saying. We have sinned. We have failed to obey his commands. We have been prideful and self-centered. And so we are not worthy of assembling in his name. Consider the words of the Lord as he spoke to the prophet Amos in the Old Testament. For three transgressions of of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. And then a little bit later, also in Amos, he says this, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. The Lord takes our assembled worship seriously. So we must must approach him on his terms. We ought not view worship with the attitude of, well, the Lord knows my heart, because he does. And that's the problem, right? We're called to worship him in holiness, yet we come to worship as people who have been unholy in thought, word, and deed. And yet, and yet, we come covered in Christ's righteousness. For those who have called upon the name of the Lord, for those who have trusted upon Christ alone for salvation and are continuing to trust in his grace and mercy and steadfast loving kindness, for those who have repented and believed, he has taken all of our sin and shame and imputed to us his perfect righteousness. And so we come as his people. And because we are his, yet still wretched and trapped in this body of death, as the Apostle Paul would say, we need to be reminded and assured that his payment for our sin has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. We continue to confess our sin, knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But there's another reason that we do this. That we confess our sin and and are assured uh, of his pardon. And that is, it's so that we will not eat and drink in an unworthy manner. In an unworthy manner. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is the only place in the New Testament that this phrase, in an unworthy manner, is used. 
Although Paul uses sort of a a counter phrase or sort of the opposite statement in a worthy manner or some form of that, he uses that statement five times to indicate actions that are proper and fitting for God's people. For example, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, Paul writes this. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you claim Christ, if you say that you are a Christian, there's a right way to live and a wrong way to live. In other words, what he's talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what he's accusing them of or warning them against is conduct unbecoming a Christian. This is a serious charge. These are not things to be taken lightly. Notice what he says. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. This is where we need to correct a little bit of bad exegesis, bad theological interpretation and application. Stay with me here because it's going to take a second. This verse has often been taken out of context and wrongly applied to all who come to the Lord's Supper. The suggestion is that Paul is addressing individual Christians who are somehow unworthy to come before the Lord because of their sin which leads to seeing verse 28 as a call for for careful self-examination to see if there are any sins in your life that need forgiveness immediately before taking communion. So this is how it kind of practically looks. Um, I've spoken often of our pastor growing up, the guy that married Chris and I, But when we would take communion, when we would come to the table together as a church, he would often quote from Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, which says this. These are the words of Christ. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The way that that worked out practically I remember having some friends. Uh, I still have friends. It's not just then. <laughs> I remember back when I had friends. <laughs> um, and it seemed like every time we would come to the table, as the ushers or the deacons or whoever was serving were coming forward to get the tray, and as the pastor was explaining, he would always try and pull his wife out so that he could apologize for something. So that they would not be guilty or he would not be guilty. And every, every single time he had to do that. He had sinned against her. But every single time he would try and pull her out and apologize for some sin or another. Well, here's the problem. In Matthew 5, that Jesus is speaking there, He's not talking about the Lord's Supper. He is talking about worship, but he's not talking about the Lord's Supper. And Paul here in 1 Corinthians 11, in fact, he's addressing hatred and murder specifically. 
But Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is, is not addressing faithful, repentant Christians. Now, now, don't get me wrong. It is a good practice, and there are other passages that call for Christians to be quick to forgive and to seek reconciliation. So Ephesians 4.32, for example, says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. But here, in this context, Paul is addressing the way in which the Corinthians have been participating in the Lord's Supper. So remember verses 21 and 22, which says this, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Paul's concern here is that there is an appropriate way of coming to the Lord's table, which is together, in communion, on equal footing. In other words, if you yelled at your kids this morning, or if you have an argument, had an argument with your husband or your wife and, and therefore sinned against them, this is not saying that if you eat and drink without first seeking their forgiveness, that you are guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, now let me just throw another curveball in there. You are guilty. You are, we were guilty. But Christ has given us His righteousness. And so if you are His, we are approaching the table with Christ's righteousness. If you have trusted in Christ for salvation, then you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, did I just excuse bad, sinful behavior? Or give you an excuse to not seek forgiveness and reconciliation? Not at all. In fact, coming to the table, or really coming to any corporate worship, it should convict us of sin and drive us to confession, knowing that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we come to the table specifically to proclaim that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He has made an atonement and taken them away. We have been pardoned. This is, this is actually why we don't do communion at the beginning of the service. Because we need to hear from Him. We need to be called to worship. We need to be reminded to sing praises to his name. We need to hear, a conf we need to confess our sin. When I'm praying a confession of sin, that's not just me confessing of my sin. That's us confessing of our sin. When I usually try and integrate a, a scripture of an assurance of pardon, when I read or, or say in the prayer an assurance of pardon, it's not just for me. It's for us. All of those who have called upon the name of the Lord. We come to the table specifically to proclaim that we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. In fact, I believe that we ought to approach all of worship with the repentant attitude, whether it's the table or just coming on a Sunday morning. I think that we should approach with the repentant attitude during the English um, persecutions of the church. <clears throat> we read accounts of those who are going to the stake or going to be killed because of their faith. <clears throat> and more often than not, they would be reciting Psalm 51 as they went to the stake. What if we recited Psalm 51 on our way to church? <clears throat> Let me read just part of that. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy with gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That's a very serious charge. And those who are treating the supper here in the city of Corinth, the church of Corinth, they were treating the supper as a drunken party and they were despising and humiliating those for whom Christ died, those whom he obtained with his own blood. And Paul is putting them in the same category as Peter does for his hearers. And when he was preaching in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. But the gospel doesn't leave sinners stained with their own guilt, but calls them to repentance. Peter continues, Acts 2, 37 and 8 says this, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, Paul calls the church at Corinth to examine themselves. He actually 
talks about examination and judgment. Look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now, especially there in verses 28 and 29, Paul uses three words that are all related. He uses the word examine, discerning, or discern, and judgment. And the first, examine, has to do with an examination of genuine faith. Look up at verse 19. It says this, For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, later, Paul will write a follow-up letter where he will say, and this is in 2 Corinthians 13, verses 5 and 6, Paul will write this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Now, there, in that follow-up letter in 2 Corinthians, he's telling them that genuine faith is seen in living a life of repentance. Here, in 1 Corinthians, the idea is that they must examine themselves so that they will not face God's examination on the last day, on judgment day. That's what he means when he says discerning the body, which is shorthand for Christ's body and blood, the very thing the Lord's Supper stands in remembrance of. See, this, in this meal, when we come to the table, the Lord's table, something different is going on than in, than in any other meal, right? The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread, the bread of life. See, this eating and drinking, this communing with Christ and his people, if you're not, if you're not in communion with Christ and his body, the church, and yet you're eating and drinking, then the scripture says here that you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. If you're in church, regularly attending, I don't mean trying to figure out all who Jesus is and the claims of Christianity. I mean, if you're a part of the church, you would tell people, yeah, I'm a Christian. But you're coming here or coming to the table in order to see and be seen or to gain a position of influence or to network with others for any other reason other than worship of the living Savior, then these verses need to stand as a warning. And it is a present warning. Sometimes when we think of God's judgment, we think of only his future judgment. But this is God's present judgment. I want to be clear, 
the Lord's Supper is only for believers who seek to live in repentance, which is the normal pattern of life for Christians, or should be. Paul's call here is for all who come to the table to examine ourselves to be sure that this is us, that we are Christians who are seeking to live in repentance. Are there secret sins that that you're unwilling to repent of? That if anyone knew, you would dig in your heels and say, that's none of your business. Are there sins in your life that would cause the church to say, because of your lack of repentance, we can no longer affirm that you're a Christian? Earlier in his letter, Paul put it like this. He says in chapter 5 to this same church, when you're assembled together in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The one who was caught in the act of adultery. Jesus himself said of the unrepentant sinner in Matthew chapter 18, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Gentiles, those outside of God's covenant people. Tax collectors were those who were technically a part of God's covenant people, but they were hurting God's people. The question is not, are you without sin? The question is, do you believe? Do you believe? And if you do, if you have trusted in Christ, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then eat and drink. Then taste and see that the Lord is good. But if you refuse to live in repentance, then then you're in danger. Verse 30 says this, That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. There are serious consequences for an abuse of the Lord's Supper. But yet again, we need to remember the context here is that this is a dire warning for those who are regularly coming to worship and yet their lives reveal a despising of the church and the church of God and a humiliation of others. Verses... 20 and 21 says that. So think of the husband who is committing adultery. Or the employee who is stealing secretly from their employer. Yet they're a church member. and They're coming to church and coming to the table regularly. Since it's that time of year, think of those who cheat on their taxes, violating a clear command of Christ, or insurance fraud, or drunkenness, The list could continue, right? Conduct unbecoming of a Christian. We sometimes forget that it's entirely possible that our health problems might be the result of God's discipline. We are quick to jump to Jesus' statement in John chapter 9 when he says it's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Who who sinned that this man was born blind, him or his parents? It's not that either of them sinned, Jesus said, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. But but maybe before we jump to that, we, we might want to apply 
Or consider James chapter 5, verses 14 to 16, which says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Some of God's people find themselves being judged by way of the Lord's discipline. But because they are His, they will not ultimately be condemned. But notice that it says, some have died. Though they are evidently Christians, only the Lord knows, or at least they claimed the name of Christ, they were a part of the church, God ended their life early due to their unrepentant hearts. Some, some might think, well, God wouldn't do that. How many times in the Old Testament do we see God doing that very thing? How many times does God bring calamity upon his covenant people, some of whom perish, in order to bring the nation of Israel back to himself? Think, for example, of the bronze serpent in the wilderness. Think of the exile. Similarly, while there was no possibility of repentance for those who were guilty and already dead, the church as a whole should heed the warning and make the necessary corrections. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves to bring us to repentance. And an unwillingness to repent marks us as, it marks us as standing condemned already. The Lord's Supper is a call to be holy as Christ is holy. It's a proclamation of those who are his people to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And Paul explains to the Corinthians just exactly how they are to do this. They are to demonstrate their repentance by changing how they come to the table and waiting for one another, he says. Waiting for one another. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. This conclusion is a, it's kind of a specific application for the church of Corinth of how they are to demonstrate their repentance for the sin that Paul has confronted back in verses 20 and 21. Wait for one another. Instead of eating... And drinking to excess while others go without, come to the table together. Wait for one another. Paul, with a, with a, really with a pastor's heart, calls them to be concerned with the needs of the others with whom they eat and drink. So that when they come together, it will not, they will not eat and drink judgment on themselves. In fact, he tells them to eat at home. He's just pointing out again that the Lord's Supper is not just another church potluck. It's a time for the church, rich and poor, old and young, to renew their covenant vows. It's a time for the church to proclaim together that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
It's a time for the church to come together and proclaim his death until he comes. It's a time for the church to come together and say, we are his people and he is our God. Pray with me. Father, as we come to the table, I pray, Lord, that you would Remind us as we eat and drink. Remind us as we fellowship with one another, as we pray, as we leave here this morning, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, for the sins that we have done, the sin that I did this morning, last night, yesterday. Lord, that Christ died for my grumpiness. He died for our idolatry, our pride. He died for our selfishness. Remind us, Lord, that we have been united to Christ. And if we have been united with him in a, res- in a, in a death like his, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so we long for the day, Lord, when Christ returns and we can eat of the marriage supper of the Lamb face to face, where we will taste and see that the Lord is very good. Father, we pray that you would continue to transform us into Christ's likeness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.